At Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Megan Lee. When it comes to science fiction, and particularly dystopian science fiction, doctors are either the saviours of humanity with their invaluable medical knowledge, or they are the villains using a lack of rules to exploit the vulnerable for their own questionable ends. But why is that? Is it a case of power corrupts? Is it that bad things are often done in the name of science? Hiron Ennis' dark and thought-provoking novel, Leech, features medics front and centre, but with a bit of a twist. Rather than being individuals, these medics are part of a larger hive mind, where medical knowledge is shared. Diagnoses are undertaken by many minds, not just one. Sounds great for science, yes? Yet Hiron's novel also explores what it feels like when a larger, more rational hive mind disagrees with an individual's instinctual actions. When that happens, which is paramount? Is it possible to be an individual and still part of a whole? That's what we hope to discuss in this episode. Hiron, thank you for joining us. Please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your book. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Hiron. Uh, as of June of this year, I am an actual medical doctor, so uh, I have recently joined the Hive Mind. But uh, before medical school, I was wandering around with really nothing much to do but write science fiction. And so uh, Leech was born out of a (laughs) bored, aimless uh, gap year between college and medical school. I had always found uh, biology fascinating. My background is in physics, but specifically biophysics. I studied chemotactic Uh, organization and behavior of bacteria. And I was just really enamored with the little ways that tiny, tiny creatures can all come together to form a whole. Um, It's especially fascinating when you look at that in the case of the human body itself, because we are essentially a whole bunch of differentiated cells that just communicate with one another like an ecosystem and I found that endlessly fascinating. So the questions that I wanted to ask which, with Leech were, what happens when a self-aware organization of microorganisms ends up infiltrating our own bodily ecosystems? And if it is intelligent and it knows basically everything about how humans work on a microscopic level, would that be good for us or terrible? So how much of this microscopic organisms invading human bodies is made up and how much did you get from science articles? Because you sound to me like the sort of person who's going to be reading New Scientists and the BMJ and all these kind of things to get all these ideas. So how much did you kind of go, you know what, I'm going to take that idea and run with it and how much is it just like, you know, just going to make it up? It's a little less BMJ and a little more undergraduate parasitology class. (laughs) So I was pretty inspired by behavioral changes in hosts of guinea worm. So the guinea worm is nearly eradicated, and it probably could be were it not for 
global unrest, but it's this nasty little worm that lives inside of your skin and it needs to exit your skin in order to reproduce. So what it does is it, it invokes a burning sensation basically in people's feet. So they seek out water and then submerge their feet in water, which allows the guinea worm to essentially reemerge into an environment that is good for reproduction. And that's actually how you catch them in, you know, in the act. Um, you submerge the limb in water and wait for the little head to come out and then you wrap it around a pencil and then you slowly, slowly turn the pencil and pull the worm out sort of inch by inch, which is a little bit terrifying uh, just because the process is not fast. And if you break it, it'll sort of slither back under the skin. But it's just one of those uh, particularly nasty, creepy crawlies that I'm a big fan of uh, because it, manipulates you into doing what it wants and that's just one small example of ways in which uh parasitic organisms can sort of alter the behavior of hosts and i wanted to sort of explore you know what if this behavior is a lot more complex i mean the idea is nothing new especially in fiction like we all have seen the zombie movies um that are based on you know, parasites infecting people and turning them into zombies, and then they get the urge to eat brains or whatever, so that the microorganism can, you know, spore or reproduce. But I kind of wanted to explore if that microorganism was well-organized and intelligent enough to take the behavioral change so far as to organize itself on in the macroscopic world, like as an institution. And that's where the interprovincial medical Institute came in as a character. It's just so cool. I know you're not really supposed to think like a parasite, an actual one in people uh, is cool, but it's so cool. Uh <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I always feel bad when I, when I talk about really interesting things that I see in patients because I sort of present them to colleagues like as, yeah, this is a really neat case of necrotizing fasciitis. And meanwhile, you know, Oof. there's like a real person suffering. From yeah. It and mm -hmm. There's all, there's the kind of like, you need that kind of passion and interest and you need to have fun in medicine or you will burn out and die. But you know, there's also real people who are suffering from these things. So it's always kind of a, a little guilty balancing act for people in medicine. <laughs> I mean, there's a thing w that we see a lot in books and TV and films with doctors kind of being portrayed as the, the baddies. They're always, you know, they're the ones manipulating, not the parasites. <laughs> but I mean, why, why is it that doctors in particular, you know, we like to cast them in those roles, you know? Uh, Charlotte and I were talking about this. You were thinking, you know, two by two, hands of blue and firefly, X Files, Ash and Alien, Twelve Monkeys, Doctor Brenner, and Stranger Things. You know, what is it? But I, I mean, I feel potentially you're talking a little bit about just that whole you you get so into the the disease or so into part of it that you forget that there is a human. I mean, do you think that's a major part of it or is there something else going on there? As far as fiction goes, I think that's a really, it's a really compelling 
motivation for a for like an evil doctor, right? Because anyone who's into science fiction is kind of by definition like curious about the world. They have their own questions that they like to ask. They kind of like the mysteries of the universe. And so there's that little spark inside of the reader as well that, you know, they have to ask. Like if I had the power and privilege enough to seek knowledge in this way, would I do that? And the answer is never unequivocally no. Like everyone I know who has any passing interest in anything at all is always sort of tempted by the opportunity to go as far with their curiosity as they can. And in most cases, that's a good impulse. Like curiosity is part of what has helped humanity come as far as it has and has really helped a lot of people. But it's just one of those completely natural impulses that it's really easy for a reader to relate to, especially in a villain, which makes villains more compelling. I think I wrote a, an essay for tour.com and I can send you the link and it's called your body is a haunted house. And I wrote it in September of last year when Leech first came out and it's about the history of medicine as an institution and how well that the crimes of that institution are known to so many people and how well that can uh, sort of fit into narratives of villainy. Like you have, you know, Nazi doctors Um, You have Tuskegee, you have essentially the great and terrible evil of the American healthcare system, which is so mundane and so ubiquitous where I live, that it's really, like, it's hardly a fictional villain at this point. It essentially is a little bit different than other sort of professional, uh, upper class, traditionally powerful decision making careers, like judges or lawyers or politicians, they don't really invoke the same kind of visceral fear as an evil doctor might, because there is that element of medicine itself being so intensely personal. And so even if a medical procedure is done fully consensually and with only the good of the patient in mind, they're still very invasive and they can be painful. And if you have to cut to cure, you still have to cut. And I think the visceral aspect of being essentially subject to a really bizarre form of violence on the body is a really ripe area for horror. You can see this also in non-invasive procedures and just taking medication can change your body in ways that you don't expect and in ways that might not make you comfortable, even though it's not necessarily a painful procedure to swallow a pill or even, even things that you want to take like uh, hormones for transition. They can always have weird side effects and weird things happen to your body and you go through puberty again and it's all just a very strange process. Being treated for anything is always a strange process. And I think that people's experience with that, even if it's something that they want, even if there's only benevolence between them and their doctor, it's still intensely personal. And that's why it's so easy to think of doctors, not just as people who can be tempted by evil, as everyone 
is, but people who have access to your innermost core, essentially, and can use that to their own ends, which is especially frightening, I think. I think also, certainly for me, you know, I've had a lot of health issues over my life, but I think something that creates fear, certainly in me as a patient, is having to put your entire trust into someone and have no idea what, like if what they're telling you is right and you just have to completely give over that, you know, and, and okay, you know, I'm intelligent enough to work out most things, but I don't have a history in biology and medicine and any of these things. I could try to read about it, but a lot of that research would go over my head. I wouldn't understand the things that they're referencing. So it is, as you say, you know, sometimes a lot of things that have to cure you or to, to help you can have uncomfortable things. I mean, <clears throat> colonoscopies. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, Drinking the gallon of Windex oh, beforehand. Oh, yeah. oh, it's awful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like there are things and in, you know, one part of me goes, okay, yes, I know this is for, you know, a good reason that I'm putting myself through this, et cetera, et cetera. But it's all, it's a massive leap of faith. And this person is someone, you know, you probably don't know very well, unless you're lucky enough to have a, a doctor that you have a good long-standing relationship with, which is very yeah. rare these days. Like yeah. who, who has the hat? Like no one. Yeah. So they're basically, it's a total stranger and you're putting your life in their hands without understanding why they're making those decisions they are, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And I think for me, that's, one of the reasons why doctors can be so terrifying because you have to just give them your entire faith and just hope that a that they know what they're talking about and b that their intentions are good (laughs) yeah I mean you're literally letting them like two feet up your ass like (laughs) it's hard to you know it's hard to let someone do that in any situation, even if it is a colonoscopy, right? <sighs> yeah, I've had many. <sighs> mm. Anyway, <laughs> Charlotte, save us from talk of my bowels. I mean, I grew up in a medical household because my father was a doctor. And obviously, Hiron, you're a doctor yourself and you work with doctors. And even as a, a trainee doctor, you're obviously working with it in that environment. So I wondered if that affected the way you view doctors within fiction. Um, I mean, I'm freaking terrified of dentists. They scare the bejesus at me. Doctors, I'm like, yeah, I've been to hospitals, done that, it's fine. But you try and put me in a dentist waiting in my heart will catapult. And I always put that down to the fact that I grew up around medicine and doctors and you just kind of get used to it. And again, having been a slightly sickly child as well, that's impacted on my trust of doctors, I suppose. So while I, I appreciate a good villainous doctor, I don't quite have the same like from them. And I wonder higher on as someone who had obviously gone from do you come from a medical family or is that are you the first one no i i have uh, doctors in my family so how do you view it then do do tell i'm intrigued whether i'm weird in all this or whether it, it does affect you growing up in a medical household i think it does i mean i think like both so both my parents were family docs and they are really good doctors and they're the kind of people that i would trust to take care of my health Um, I feel like being raised 
by do- the one thing that they told me never to become when I was a kid was a doctor. Um, and so I tried to disappoint them as best I could and became a pathologist, <laughs> which is like the doctor's doctor, right? They're the, you go to your doctor to ask questions about your health and your doctor comes to the pathologist to ask questions about your health. I, I feel like the most that they really affected the way that I understood medicine was well they had a lot of complaints about the bureaucracy for one but like every every adult talks about that kind of shit in front of their child at the dinner table but I feel like they are sort of plagued by the same curiosity that I was as a child and they allowed me to explore the weird things that I was into like I mom had a uh, a dermatology book and it was full of just you know, boils and rashes and like really heinous stuff. And I loved it. I would sit under her desk on days that I was too sick to go to school and just look at the surgical diagrams and, you know, the abscesses and (laughs) the, the amount of not freaked out they were by their child really allowed me to kind of um, blossom into somebody who is really into horror and medicine at the same time. But as far as, like, the practice of medicine itself, uh, they really didn't talk that often about it in front of me. And so I didn't really develop, like, I feel like it's hard for me to say if I developed any strong opinions about medicine from them, uh, because I don't have a control. I don't have a version of myself where I wasn't Uh, raised in a medical family and so it's really hard for me to say if I would have a different opinion or if that would have changed my opinion on going to the hospital I never minded going to the hospital honestly Uh, because you know our friends were there (laughs) they were the ones giving the vaccines so I feel like we could have a, a childhood episode all, all by ourselves, just the three of us discussing all the weird and wonderful things that happened to us to create us into the strange people who like horror and stories that we are today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> <laughs> so moving away a little bit from doctors, um, you mentioned earlier about obviously it's not quite the same horror when you have lawyers and politicians because doctors are so personal. They deal with your body. Your body is yours. It is your sanctuary. It is your final level of defense. And then doctors come along and cut it up. Even, you know, non-invasive stuff and medication can be really, um, really unpleasant. And you use, like say, as an example, lawyers and obviously politicians. And I was thinking about the idea that, yeah, lawyers and politicians aren't as scary because they're usually more policy, they're more oppression, they're they're less direct, they're sort of more the institution. And obviously the institution is a a character in your book, in Leech. Um, And the story of the individual against the faceless institution is something we keep coming back to again and again in horror, in science fiction, and and all that kind of thing. So why do you think it is? What is its continuing appeal? Honestly, I feel that it continues to appeal to many readers because it's just an exaggeration of the kind of shit they have to deal with every day. Having one's own will overridden by bureaucracy is just one of those daily horrors, right? Like I 
talk to people like within, like I talk to patients who feel like they're not being heard. They're not being listened to. And I talk to doctors who feel the same way because they work for a hospital and then the ho- some of the hospital administration feel the same way because they're answerable to the CEO who's answerable to the board, who's answerable to the shareholders who don't know what's going on with any of the patients at the hospital. And so it's, it's like this faceless whirlpool that everybody serves, but no one has any power over even people that you think would have power over it. Um, Abigail Thorne, who is philosophy tube, who actually read the audiobook for Leech, which uh, everyone listening should totally go listen to. Um, she had a pretty good video about this uh, and her experience with the NHS, which is arguably 10 times more functional than the healthcare system over here on the other side of the pond, but has a lot of uh, really good points about how the size and the bureaucratic nature of these systems is fundamentally not there to serve the individual, but there to serve itself. It's, it's all kind of just a weird abstract algorithm that exists to be served by the people who are in the system. And that is ubiquitous for all sorts of stuff for medicine, uh, politics, law, business. It's something that literally everyone in every facet of their life has to deal with, um, essentially being answerable to and tracked and monitored by, like, I can't even go to work without my phone knowing where I am. I can't walk my dog without it. It's everywhere in every facet of life is just sort of being this, this feeling of being powerless against and or watched by some some entity that might be comprised of humans but isn't necessarily human and i i feel like because a lot of readers just live with that feeling every day they find these narratives that bring that relationship explicitly to the surface to be very appealing to them so a key aspect of leech is the idea that all the medics have a link with the minds of the other medics all around the world. And one person doing a diagnosis in you know, a small archipelago island could be talking to someone in the Arctic who's also going, oh, yeah, I've come across that. And I just thought that was perhaps the most brilliant inventive idea for medicine I've ever heard. And I just, I looked at it and I went, I can see so many possibilities for that. I mean, having a shared mind makes the Institute so unbelievably powerful and they actually see themselves as wielding that power benignly for the good of humanity and that's what it seems like on the face of it but as we said in the introduction you then get an issue where you're balancing the good of humanity with the good of individuals because people have to give up their humanity to be part of this hive mind and yet sometimes it's the humanity in you as a doctor that can give you a a bit of an edge and a bit of an insight so it it struck me as something you must have put an awful lot of thought into to balance it all out. So I wanted to ask you how you came up with the idea of the Institute doing great good for science, but incalculable harm to individuals and how you brought that power balance onto the page. So a lot of what the Institute does is inspired by what has actually happened with medical science over the years. And 
a lot of the things that we knew about medicine in the latter half of the 20th century was actually essentially co-opted by Nazi experiments. And there has always been in real life this schism between what we would like to think is good for society and the cost that that knowledge comes with. The Institute, I think, is a little bit unique in that it is aware of this schism and it knows that there is something inhuman about it and it sits down and it it can calculate what it thinks it needs to do for the good of humanity versus what it needs to do for the good of itself because they are inextricably linked. So the Institute is a microorganism that lives inside of people's bodies. And so it considers human health less of a, less of a moral calling and more of a responsibility to maintain the houses in which it lives. It's more of an ecological thing. And so it really sort of casually talks about culling and uh, choosing to cure things and not choosing to cure other things. And the way it speaks of its patients is sort of the way that you would talk about managing some sort of ecological situation, like some sort of environment. But at the same time, each one of these each, each portion of this environment is an individual body. And those individual bodies are inextricably linked, not just by virtue of sharing this hive mind, but by virtue of having bodies that are similar to one another, having bodies that can reproduce with one another, having bodies that can spread diseases amongst one another. And the Institute has a lot fewer qualms about things like, you know, any, any clashes between public health and individual freedom that we have, such as mandatory reporting of infectious disease in some places and um, a, <laughs> a very recent uh, hullabaloo about mask wearing and vaccination and the environment of the current pandemic. And there really aren't any answers, and I have none. I have come to no conclusion based on writing this book. And it has just been sort of fascinating to approach the question of uh, an individual's will versus the good of a larger whole from the perspective of something that isn't even human that pretty much fully relies on the good of the larger whole to perpetuate itself. And this is coming from somebody who uh, is a huge, huge advocate for public health. Uh, and it's just, I don't know, it's just something that will, that has always been complex and will always be complex because the environment, the medical environment that we have is shared between everyone. There are limited resources, there are communicable diseases, and people have as much of a right to not be exposed to something as they have a right to choose what happens to them after exposure to something. I feel a bit like we've come full circle in a way because the fact that 
doctors or medical personnel end up having to make decisions about, you know, curing one person versus thousands of people or, you know, testing something on someone that might have a negative effect, but then the millions of people who will benefit from it, you know, these really intense philosophical conundrums are sort of put in the hands of doctors and because, well, who else would take them? But that again is why they can be quite easily seen as terrifying. It's, those are not questions that are easily answered or dealt with in any way, but they are crucial to the survival of the species. Yeah, yeah. And there are whole there are whole side degrees that my colleagues are getting in bioethics and public health and things like that. And it seems like the more you know about it, the more bizarre the situation becomes and the less easy it is to answer any questions about any of these things. I mean, we, we, of course, have, you know, bases of bioethics that are outlined, like, after World War II, and they have the Geneva Convention, and there are uh, very much rules that are set into place for human subjects research, uh, now more so than there used to be. But one of, the, one of my favorite pediatricians that I worked with likes to posit the question, is it ethical to experiment on children? And that's a that's a question that you can't really answer because children don't really have they're they're a protected class, right? They they don't really have the capacity to consent for anything. But also children get sick. Children need medication. Medications work differently on children than they do on adults. Like this is there's a reason why you don't give kids aspirin, but it's perfectly fine to give adults aspirin. And if we don't have the basis of knowledge that requires essentially running experiments on populations of children, then we don't know what we can do to help children, essentially. It's it's one of those just extremely weird things in medicine that you never want to think about, but that we have to think about all the time. So it becomes clear later on that the medic, who is the main character in Leech, was taken as a young person and trained up. And that obviously has some issues later on with their idea of who they are and what their identity is. Do you think there's another story out there and a happier story perhaps of say like a 60 year old guy who's been a doctor for ages and then gets one of these little creatures inside him that gives him access to the hive mind and goes, you know what, that's a really happy story because I've lived my life and I've got all this wealth that I can share with everyone. Or do you think there's still going to be issues with self-determination and how they feel? Do you think it's ever possible to give ourselves up wholly, completely to a hive mind? Or do you think the individual is always going to triumph? Oh, that's a hard one. <laughs> so I think there is there is probably a happy story in there. Um, we can see sort of the opposite happen in Leech with the character of Stanislaus, who was a 60-year-old guy who was infected with pseudomycota, which interfered with communication of the Institute parasite. And he ended up realizing what had happened to him. And that, for him, was a great tra- tragedy that he had not been able to live his life as as he wanted to. But I also can see 
something like that happening and the individual responding in a different manner. And that's kind of the thing is people, people are so different. Their physiology is so different. Their, the cocktails of their neurotransmitters are all extremely different and people respond so differently to different stimuli because of this huge incomprehensible mesh of biology and upbringing and environment and epigenetics and all sorts of complex variables that it's really, yeah, I, I can comfortably say that, that there is probably not any way that a human body would be able to conform completely to a hive mind because structurally everyone's brains and their bodies are so different that it's really hard to, I mean, even with things like antidepressants, it's really sometimes difficult to predict how somebody will respond to that. And people respond to medications differently. And I I don't know, I I feel like there could be some sort of effort uh, to align human brains as computers into one large you know, essentially what the Institute is doing, like one large conglomerate of brains that are working together rather well. But you can see with the Institute, even when it tries to arrange everybody uh, in a certain way and sort of align these brains to work for it in a very specific way, and it does this pretty well, but you can see that a lot of its bodies still retain things that are unique to those bodies, um, like injuries attained in childhood are, are still there. Phobias that are like deeply ingrained are still there. A lot of things that, that bodies are born with or that they acquire early stay for a long time in life and are often ineradicable. And just the sheer uniqueness of each human body is sort of incomprehensible. And I don't think you can account for that when trying to make a hive mind out of human bodies. You've raised some fascinating issues in Leech, and I kind of feel that if we delve any deeper, we might be getting into some genuine spoilers. And for all our listeners out there, you have to read this book. It is utterly amazing. I enjoyed it so much. So thank you for talking to us, Hyron. I've got one final question, um, and let's take it to a slightly lighter and nicer note. And I wanted to ask you, to counterbalance all that we've been talking about, who is your favourite good fictional doctor? And I have to have a shout out for uh, Dr. Crusher and also Scully, mainly because I really like their hair and wanted to be exactly like them. And I've got, there are pictures out there of me with a Scully haircut when I was like 14. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they're, they're my awesome. favorite ones and I want to throw them in as, as wonderful, wonderful people. But what about you? So this is actually a really difficult one for me to think about because I've got a list of like a thousand terrible doctors I love from fiction. But one that sort of stuck with me over the years uh, is actually Croker from Glenn Cook's Black Company series. It's sort of a, it's dark fantasy slash Vietnam war fiction. So it's just, it's about a mercenary band and the narrator is their doctor. And so He's essentially like a military doctor. It's like MASH in a dark wizard world, right? Uh, He's just very funny, very deadpan, um, very dedicated to his 
his patience <laughs> and he's just it's very interesting to see from his eyes the kind of work that you would do as a military doctor in like a fantasy world like he has people come to him who are soldiers who have like spear wounds but he also sees like weird wizard shit um and also at the same time he's got to cure all these dudes crabs and it's just like it's just a really sort of charming funny situation uh told by a very deadpan charming funny dude so i think he might be my favorite fictional doctor that kind of sounds like mash but in high fantasy to me (laughs) yeah yeah it essentially is (laughs) it's one of my favorite series it's it's i'm overdue for a reread on it because i read it when i was like 17 and it kind it was one of those books that changed my life (laughs) but uh yeah i've got it on my shelf here and uh it's uh it's on my list again i love that series Well, we're going to be jumping onto an extra little recording now for our Patreon supporters. Uh, But for the moment, thank you so much, Hiram, for coming and talking to us. It has been an utter blast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.